Jim, welcome back to Tim Century. Good Thank to see you, you again. Thank you. Good. Uh, so for the audience at home, this is part three of our interview with uh, Jim. Jim's first part was talking about Eldorado Canyon principally and his time flying the F-111F. Uh, so if you haven't listened to that, go back and do it. You definitely need to go back and listen to part two if you haven't listened to that already, because that's where Jim talks about being a test pilot, going through test pilot school, and then some of the work that he did as a test pilot in the US Air Force. And and that's where we're going to pick up today. So if you listen to that first and then come back to this, if you haven't already listened to it, it will make more sense. Right, that's my bit done. Jim, when we were when we were talking last, uh, you had explained how you'd worked a couple of years at Eglin mainly doing weapon separation trials or weapon testing, sensor testing, all that kind of stuff. And then you've gone and done a classified assignment for a couple of years. What happened next? Um, I want to go back for just a little bit back to Eglin, because we kind of skipped the whole Gulf War. And um, back at Eglin, this is the summer of 1989, no, summer of 1990. I am tasked to do a fuse test at Eglin. Fuse test? I mean, what the hell is that? We're used to firing AMRAMs, dropping bombs, you know, death-defying dives, shooting guns, all that kind of stuff is fun. So when it came across my desk as a test pilot for a fuse test, I go, big deal. Well, it turned out to be the FMU-139, which was a new class of electronic fuse to replace all the old manual nose-tail fuses the uh, Mark 904 and 905s. So the idea of this fuse is that it was going to be smart enough to sense an ex- a deacceleration when you put a hydrate balloon on the end of a bomb as opposed to a fuse that wasn't. And because our current fuses couldn't tell that difference, we had a subsonic... Um, Carrot, not carrot, but a subsonic delivery limitation on all of our ordnance in the Air Force. So this fuse was going to allow us to drop weapons supersonically, conventional weapons supersonically. How do you test for that? Well, you got to go supersonic. And then you have to be able to find the bomb you dropped and see if the fuse worked properly. So the 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 scare and the risk is that you're going low level, you're going supersonic, and you drop a bomb and the balloon fails. It doesn't release high drag, it goes out slick. And there's not enough bomb trail from where the bomb hits and where the airplane is, you'll you'll frag yourself and destroy the airplane. Well, this new fuse was supposed to say, hey, there's not enough deceleration. The balloon didn't work. I am not going to arm. And the fuse is going to be smart enough to save the airplane and the crew. Well, we have to recover these bombs. So the test is to go Mach 1.2 over the Eglin ranges, drop a bomb, see it, record where it impacted, go out, find it, dig it up, dismantle it, and go, yep, worked. And we did that 12 times to get a um, statistical representative drop. So 12 times, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Eglin Ranges, but there's a great big highway that separates Eglin Air Force Base from the interstate that goes east and west, and that's uh, Highway 85 that connects Eglin and Crestview. 
It's huge. It's a big four-lane motorway that people use every day to get to work. Well, when we dropped this, they had to close that road with cops on both sides. And I took a VARC at like 10,000 feet, subsonic. As soon as I crossed that road, then we did a 45-degree dive, went into Brunner, got supersonic going downhill, hit the ranges, and crossed this uh, run-in on the big range out at Eglin going Mach 1.2, released the weapon with all these cameras showing and the telemetry, and then the engineers drove out in jeeps and trucks and picked them up and, um, and recovered the fuse, and it all worked perfectly. But what a fun test from subsonic to supersonic in about 10 miles to drop this bomb. You know, it was really cool. So, so, so that's that. So, 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 the, so they were videoing it? Is that how they located it on the ground? Yes. So we've got a helicopter and a C-130 with telemetry and um, infrared and television cameras watching where the bomb splashes and skips and finally comes to rest. And then the guys would drive out there and go further to your right, keep going another 100 yards further to your right, there it is, and they would find it and recover it. Wow. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'd forgotten that when, and it was only last week, so I shouldn't have forgotten that we, did, we recorded part two, but I'd forgotten we left that cliffhanger there yeah. um, for, to get people to come back. And I had assumed you were doing this in a strike eagle where you would just put the pipper on, uh, well, on the target. The and, strike and, eagle um, was doing what we call Seek Eagle certification. We were working like crazy trying to get as many configurations certified on the F-15E. The first operational squadron um, hadn't gone operational yet when we got our first two Strike Eagles. And I think the um, they went operational once they got to Desert Storm and deployed in Al's garage that they were called operational ready after they had deployed. But all this is kind of coming up at the same time in the summer of 1990. Okay. Can I ask you a question then about the recovery of that bomb? And maybe this is not something you're, uh, you, you know because you're not the engineers yeah. you're not in the engineering world that did that. But how much of the fuse was left? I mean, you're dropping it at Mark 1.2. What's that? Eight, you know, 700, 800 miles an hour. It's hitting the ground. Yeah. It's burying itself presumably dozens of feet into the ground. Well, it's very low. Uh, the impact area there at Eggman handle it's all a bunch of sand you know so it's not like we're dropping it into uh, a granite cliff it is very sandy it's been plowed under and the bomb skipped like two or three times as it goes over because it's such a shallow grazing handle it didn't just go in and bury uh we were low enough and we planned that delivery so it would skip and by the time it finally came to rest it kind of tumbled and we could see it Oh, that's interesting. Okay. So, so it was it was largely intact then? Yes. Yes. Wow. In fact, completely intact. You know? And, and so was it a difficult test to fly for you? Um, yes. Can- it was extremely difficult because um, if, you, if you look at the map, the distance from that highway to the target is about 15 miles. And to go from subsonic at 10,000 feet to 200 feet in a stable position so you mm-hmm. can hit what you're aiming at, and be absolutely as fast as the jet can go was exhilarating and fun, you know, and something that had to be practiced, you know? 
It, it brings to mind a question I meant to ask you in the last episode. So this is kind of turning into episode uh, 2.5, a continuation yeah. of the test pilot yeah. uh, school interview. But uh, I meant to ask you this question, and I don't think I did. Um, when you talked about test pilot school you said they sent you the maths book or the math book and you had and they said this is the starting point learn all this stuff before you turn up and you went through and got your old um, engineering documents out and your de- your degree documents out and the question i was going to ask you was how much of that mathematics and engineering and sort of calculus type stuff you actually use when you got to the test pilot world um so because because my assumption would have been that the engineers do all the maths and then they say to you okay here's the profile so you don't have to do all of that calculation so that's an assumption how much did you actually use in, in practice well um it's a it's a good question a valid question and i would say um not as much as you would think but some it's because i never had a job that was that intensive in going over the fluid dynamics of the actual equation of the predicted flow. Mm. But uh, uh, the test pilots for the major contractors, Lockheed, Boeing, uh, British Airspace, those guys and the guys that are doing the first inf- the first developmental testing of something that important are very integrated. And that's the real strength of a test pilot is that they can fly an airplane and instead of going, it doesn't feel right, you know? It's just, it, this is a wanky airplane, you know? It's got nose rise and I couldn't hold the pipper and it feels funny. That's the way fighter pilots talk. But a test pilot will go, you know, I had a real symmetric pull through about four Gs and then instead of a nice symmetric predictable stick force per G at four Gs, it started to get light, and I found I could get to 5Gs with only another one pound, and I actually had to, I had trouble transitioning in that sweet spot. And then you go back to the engineers, and you look at the um, and the whole fluid dynamics equation, and you start looking at all the little parameters that go in that, and you start talking about, well, is it the, is it the pitch gain that is coming off the transducer or do we need to put another spring on the control stick to make it tighter or is it the airplane responding to airflow over the tail what is causing this nose rise Uh, and can we correct it with just a flight control modification in the software or do we need to add some sort of straight or something on the airplane and the test pilot is just invaluable and talking to the engineers and going, you know, it didn't seem mechanical. We're talking about an aerodynamic change here. We need to relook at this. And that's the real value of, of test pilots that can talk that airplane speak where the engineers can then apply it. So follow on question then based on what you've just said, was there a lot of applicability for that kind of feedback then in weapons testing? Is it is it as new, you know sort of um, lengthy a process as, as as testing of the airframe? Uh, no, no. Okay. It, to be honest, down at Eglin, we had some really smart engineers and a whole great big 
multi-story building of predicted flow and similar weapons and the best minds would go, we think this is going to be okay. Uh, but we want to build up to the endpoint. So we're going to do three drops and we're going to verify that it kind of works similar to a Mark 82 and we're going to build up to it. And then we end up having an unexpected anomaly. Bomb-to-bomb collisions or a bomb-to-airplane collision or it gets too close for safe tolerances. And then we will rethink and try it again at a lower dive angle, a lower speed, a different wing sweep, based on going back to talk to all the engineers. But we did that quite a bit, is that, you know, this this workup was too close. Uh, it Too much wobble, too much uh, inside movement towards the airplane. We're afraid that if we go another 10 degrees, it's going to go ahead and hit the airplane, mm-hmm. or it's going to continue to travel aft and hit the tail if we go faster. So we did a lot of re-engineering based on the predicted theory, but that was, for the most part, uh, the Seek Eagle office and the smart engineers in that office that were doing that kind of analysis. Can I ask you one final question on this then, Jim? Otherwise, this really will turn into interview two point yeah. five instead of interview three. But um, the you know energy maneuverability theory, uh, you know, Christie Boyd, those guys, one of the things that enabled them to do what they did, whether you think you know whether whether you're on the sort of anti uh boyd side of the table or the pro boyd side of the table doesn't really matter um, was the advancement in computational um capability the, the the use of supercomputers you know computers that filled the size of a room and their ability to gain access to those that allowed them to do that you just mentioned uh fluid dynamics of course computational fluid dynamics have, have come a long way uh, and that's now you know how we do the weather and all sorts of things and, and it has been for a long time um what did you see in terms of simulation and the development of simulation during the time that you were a test pilot? Um, and and to what degree could or did simulation replace actual testing? Ooh, man, I don't know how to answer that in a short period, you know, or well, to keep from... I, I got as long as you want. Keep from boring the audience out there. You know, when we talk about simulation, most people talk about simulators, you know, and learning how to fly through a simulator. I'm not going to address that. What I'm going to address is predicted value versus results. And I would say today, we used to call that the difference between theory and flight test is bullshit. You know, until you (laughs) flight test it, theory is just bullshit. Uh, the bullshit has gone down, and as we've gotten smarter and the processing has gotten better, the actual flight test results are mirroring the prediction much, much better. And I saw that in my career, and that was 20 years ago. I flew my last one. From entering flight test world until I left, the difference between predicted and actual was getting closer and closer as uh, computer technology um, increased. So would you would you ever be in a position, or were you ever in a position where, because you had simulation and you were confident in the accuracy of the simulation, you didn't go and fly a test point for that particular? We topic? did it. We did it every day. Um, for instance. Uh, Hey, how many AMRAMs do you need to do to certify the AMRAM at the uh, 
clean aircraft limits. Well, we did one and that was right on the money. And we go, okay, it's acting like it is. It's going to work great. All we got to do is go to the endpoint, the worst case, the highest dynamic pressure, the highest mock, the, the, the lowest G, and then in fact, a negative G. Will the aircraft, will the missile still clear the airplane and separate as predicted? So, yeah, we skipped all those other ones in between because the first time the prediction was so, uh, the actual was so good to the prediction. That's very interesting. I can imagine that that sort of ups the stakes for you as the little sort of pink body in the aeroplane. If you're not going for those stepped increments yeah. and, you know, I can imagine yeah. that, that would be interesting. That's, okay. okay. I to, I've derailed us enough. Sorry. I'll let you yeah. back on with it. So after Eglin, I go off into the secret world, and I effectively fall off the map for three years. Um, and um, after those, but in those three years, I get promoted to 05. And um, because I'm promoted and an early promotee, they say, Jim, we're, we're going to take you out, and we're sending you to senior service school. And um, they sent me to Marine Corps uh, War College. You talk about the big war colleges. Most of them were hundreds of people. Uh, Army, Carlisle, Barracks. The Air Force has uh, Air War College in Maxwell. The National uh, War College at Fort McNair in D.C. And the Marines had 10. 10 Jose's a year go through the Marine Corps War College. There were seven Marines, an Army guy, a Navy guy, and me. And we were the whole Marine Corps class, and I went to Quantico for a year, just probably one of the greatest years of my life. I just really enjoyed um, that year. The Marines and the other um, mates that I met there in school, and I learned a ton. The commandant of the school Colonel Kelly used to be Colin Powell's legislative liaison. Colin Powell was chairman of the Joint Staff. Um, the uh, president of that little school was a guy named Colonel Wilkinson, an Army guy, who was General Powell's chief of staff. These two guys were as connected to the National Command Authority and the highest ranks of the uh, United States military as any two people in the country. And they ran a war college symposium that was just fascinating. It, we stressed uh, operations. We stressed tactics. We stressed the Marine Corps and how they fit in. But we just talked about the, how the military is manned and equipped and how we fight wars and how we get there. It just exploded my head and gave me an awareness that put me in my next job. And my next job, due to those two gentlemen, they put me on the joint staff in an office called JOD, Joint Operations Division. And the United States military, the joint staff, runs all the operations. The services do the training and equipping, but operations, who's deploying, who's doing what mission, who are we bombing, who are we defending against, is the Joint Operations Division. And I did UCOM, and that was when the Balkans were coming up mm -hmm. and Bosnia. 
that was when we had three or four Neos, uh, non-combatant evacuation of uh, organization, permissive uh, evacuation, uh, and non-permissive. And in Africa, of different embassies and countries, we were just as busy as can be. And it was just a great two-year tour that somebody a lot different than me is supposed to have that job. It is supposed to be an operator that they're grooming for a general officer that gets that job. But those two guys got little old Jose from the Marine Corps Staff College that got to do that job for two years. And it was a a real eye-opening experience and got me uh, right there next to the highest echelons of U.S. decision-making. It was great. So um, do that for two years, but now I am um, a a guy without a mentor. I fall off the planet for three years. The flight test community doesn't know who I am. I went to the joint world. All the people that love me are Marines and admirals. You know, there is, I don't have an Air Force guy that knows my name. I would go through the Air Force spaces and the Pentagon, and there were two things that were sad, is that when I walked down the hall, I didn't recognize anyone walking down the hall, and what was worse is they didn't recognize me. You know, I just wasn't known in the Air Force. But when I walked down the Marine Corridor or the uh, Navy corridor. Hey, Jose, how's it going? What you doing? I had like five or six friends in those corridors that I had known from war college or working with the Marines or doing ops that were involving the Navy and the Marines for that time in the staff tour. So when it came time for my next assignment, I knew I needed to take command. I needed command. So I applied for squadron command it was, uh, there was no doubt I wasn't going to get a squadron in the operational air force. They had retired my airplane by then. Um, who's going to hire a brand new guy to go fly, to go command an F-16 squadron or an F-15 squadron with no operational time in that airplane. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put my hat out and I applied to ATC and I got hired as the T-38 commander at Columbus Air Force Base. So I walked into Columbus um, in the summer of 1997 as the new P-38 commander, and that's how I finished my career in Air Training Command um, in the 38th Squadron at Columbus. Just, just before Jim, just before you talk about the experience, then going back to you know, sometimes you guys call them white jets, don't you? Training jets. Before you talk about that experience, going back to ATC, I wanted to understand a little bit about why it was when you were on your classified assignment that the other people in your community didn't know about you. I mean, I would have again, it's an assumption. I would have assumed that you know, within the community, there would be some uh, um, appreciation for the fact that other people are doing some things that are classified and, and so on and so forth. But that generally, people would know what was going on. Is that not the case? Um, that's not the case. So, um, the way it kind of works is if you're in an operational wing, Tyndall, Eglin, um, somewhere in PACAP, you know, any of the operational bases, the wing commander has his operational group commander and has three operational squadrons and he knows, or she knows all the pilots in their operation and they have their favorites 
And one of the things that these senior leaders at that base level, the wing level, want to do is push and mold and and rise up their folks, their best men and women to make sure they get promoted, they get the good jobs, and they come up. So it becomes kind of like a style contest amongst all the operational wing commanders to get their guys and gals recognized in the good staff jobs. Same thing in systems command. Only in systems command, there's really only two wings, not 10. There's two. There's a big wing, the mothership, out at Edwards. And then there's a little ship at uh, Eglin. And everything else doesn't matter. So mm. you've got the you've got the wing commander at Edwards, and he wants or she wants to rise up and develop their pilots. They want their pilots to get the good staff jobs, to get the early promotion, to command the people that they know these important test missions. So. Command for a test pilot is being in charge of the F-22 Combined Test Force, which is a squadron-type command. Um, the um, C-5 modification program, you know, all these different organizations that they stand up for a big test effort. Those are what test pilots aspire to command and how they get promoted through systems command. I didn't do that. You know, I was off the planet, really kind of flying half operational, half test and unknown to that world. Hmm. And when I tried to come back to that world, oh, yeah, I remember Jose. What's he been doing for the past six years? He hadn't been flying tests at Edwards. That's for sure. You know, why should I pick him for a prestigious job over this guy that I've seen develop? And that I've gleaned, you know, to this, That's to this very position. Interesting. So you, yeah. you, you said that it was the, uh, did you say it was the OPSO at uh, Eglin who'd said, who tapped you on the shoulder and said, Hey, I've got, I've got, I've got a, a job for you, a special job for you. And you'd taken that. So you kind of scuppered your, yourself in a, in a sense. I did. I, it was a conscious decision and I had a great career going and, um, I was at a crossroads, you know, I, uh, was afraid that if I didn't do something proactive right then, I was going to get ma- I was going to get promoted to major, and they were going to send me off to staff college for a year, and then I was going to go to the staff world. So I was trying to stay in a flying position, and I was trying to get out of going to the major level staff school. So I went out and I was trying to politic, and I was talking to my mentors. What's my move here, pal? Uh, uh, sir. And uh, my old commander said, Hey, let me, let me see what I can do. And he came to me and said, Jose, I found a job for you. And you, you won it. <laughs> yeah. But that was, that was what I was going to say. I mean, it sounds like, um, you know, so, so the, the positive is that it was a cool assignment, but the negative yeah. is that it derailed your career or your career prospects. Well, I, but I didn't know that at that time. It's only years later that I can reflect with the grace of a gray-haired old man <laughs> on on what could have been and how I could have done things better. But at the time, there was no decision involved. It was just, oh, hell yeah, I'm in. 
Now, now, when we talked last time, you said that before you ended up going to Columbus, they did offer you a job at the FTD, which is the Foreign Technology Division, which is based at Wright Pat. And um, you, you mentioned Jackman Clark, who, if the audience isn't aware, he was a former commander of the 4477th Test and Evaluation Squadron, which were a constant peg, and that story is well known. And if it's not, buy my book. Um, and you'll get to know it. Little plug for my book there, Jim. Um, but you said that that wasn't of interest to you. Why not? Um, well, uh, I was offered that job when I got promoted to Colonel while I was at Columbus. So, hey, one of the T the T thirty eight squadron commander gets on the O six list. Woohoo! The base is really proud and happy. You know, it's and it, and I am. I was just thrilled. It really was a great accomplishment. And now I go, okay, now what? And um, I called the colonel's group. Hey, so now what? What? And he goes, well, you really belong to uh, uh, systems command. And um, why don't you give this guy a call? And um, you can talk about it. So I called up. He goes, oh, Jose, nice to see you. He's talking to me like we're best friends. Never met the guy before in my life. Jose, nice to see you. Hey, congratulations. we got a great job for you. We want to bring you back to Wright Pat. And you're going to be on the staff. And you're going to be the FT commander, uh, foreign technology commander. And I go, hey, I, I know something about that. It's not a bad fit. I can tell why you're picking me. And... I um, said, okay, thanks. And now I'm kind of panicking. And in that week, um, I went around and said, do I have any other options? And I called some old friends back at the Pentagon. Dan Darnell was my old commander at the Pentagon. And now he was the general in charge of Aviano. Mm. And uh, he retired as three stars. And... Um, I asked him for advice, and he gave it. I went and talked to my old commander, who was now the ops group commander, uh, Kevin Burns uh, at Eglin, and wasn't feeling a lot of love, you know? Just wasn't feeling love for the possibility of, well, what about going back to, to Eglin or getting a flying job at Edwards or getting an OG job in the operational world? Hmm. So I was... Um, considered for the OG at Al's Garage. And that's what I really wanted. And I called Darnell to help me get that. And I was trying to call in favors to politics. Didn't get it. And I can see why. They would have been stupid to give that kind of job for me. I didn't have the operational experience. So the, the recourse was, okay, I'm going back to Systems Command. And I knew immediately my career was going to, I go to Systems Command I'm in that staff job for three years. I do well. And they offered me a vice wing commander job as my final good deal, going away gift. And I end up being the vice wing commander at either Edwards or um, Eglin. And I retire as an 06 as a vice wing commander. That's how it was going to play out. And my wife at the time came to me and she goes, hey, Jim. When does it get good for us? You know, here we've been following you around for 20 years. My kids are, were already in their third high school. When does it get good for us? Here you want to go off and traipse around the world again. And then again after that, you know, we're kind of tired of following you around. When does it get good for us? So that's, I decided to get out of the Air Force. So that's when I said, no, 
I don't, I don't want that track. I don't want to go be on the staff and then retire as that old, old six that nobody wants to fly with because he's no good in the airplane. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's brutal. Yeah. But in the meantime, Columbus wasn't we. Just just before you talk about Columbus, then um, let me ask you another question that relates to something you just said, which is that you know you're a uh, systems command guy. I think you said systems systems command owns you. How was your application to go to Air and Education Training Command viewed by Systems Command? What, you know, is is it are you sort of snubbing your nose, uh, or is it perceived that you're snubbing your nose if you're a member of the test pilot community and you say I don't want to do this anymore? I want to go and teach people white jets. I hadn't really considered that question, but I think. Yes. And at that time, the process was different. I mean, the process was uh, normally uh, if I wanted to be a commander in training command, I went through my leadership at my wing, which would have been a systems command wing. And they send those folks and they scrub them and then they send them to headquarters and headquarters scrubs them and goes, yeah, we'll let this guy leave. And Systems Command takes those lists of names and goes, here's our list of folks we think would be great. Um, AETC, Air Training Command, Commanders, and Jose is number seven. <laughs> you know, or Jose is number 20, you know, or something. And here it is. And that's how that process goes. You know, I had no idea. I didn't do that. I went through, hey, the chief of staff, um, the uh, the S3, the uh, general pace, a lieutenant, uh, a marine lieutenant general signed my application. My mm. application was signed by a three-star marine general, general pace. He went on became, to become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's the guy that submitted my application. The guy that signed it for me, my boss, was Admiral Keating. Admiral Keating went on to be PACAS. You know, Fear Star Admiral, they both liked me. They said, sure, Admiral Keating signed my letter, my cover letter, endorsed by General Pace, who was the, um, the wow. S3 at the Pentagon. And AETC looks at this and goes, yeah, okay. We'll bring this guy in and give him an interview. So they flew me uh, to Columbus. I had an interview with the wing commander. He liked me, and that's how I got the job. Wow. So I bypassed Systems Command, and I think that was kind of, they took it as, okay, who is this guy? <laughs> wow. Okay, t tell us about Columbus. And what, what did you, bef before you, uh, well, you tell us about Columbus, and I'll ask questions about it once you finish talking. Um, well, um, to get to Columbus, I had to go through pit pilot instructor training. I did that as a fate back in 1980. So this is 1997. I went back there and it was just a very easy, quick checkout. So uh, I went there TDY. I was there for like three, four weeks. It was uh, it was two days crammed into four weeks for me. Uh, I, I, had st I had more time in the T-38 and knew more about the T-38 than just about anybody. And I uh, transitioned really fast. And then I still had like three months left at the Pentagon before I left. And I used to brag my last 
three months at the Pentagon. Hey, how many of you guys around here have landing currency? I got landing currency now, you know? Um, so uh, I, I checked out and then I transitioned from the Pentagon straight to Columbus and I walked into my new squadron and had a change of command like about two days after arriving. And what I saw was completely different than when I went through. Reading the room, and I think one of the most important things a commander can do is read the room when he gets or when she gets somewhere. Uh, the room in 1980 was full of fates. We were pumping out pilots just as fast as we could. My squadron at Colum at Williams, where I went, where I was at fate, we were doing 100 plus sorties every day, and and more than um, half of those were all flown by fates. Uh, first assignment IPs, and we only had like one or two fighter guys in the whole squadron, a lot of tanker guys, but it was just pumping out pilots, and we trained pilots exactly the same. Whether you're going to go fly a tanker or a fighter, you went through the same syllabus, flew the same airplane, you did everything same, same. When, uh, 17 years later, when I came in 1997, um, Columbus was full of 05 fighter pilots. I'm being kind of facetious, mm -hmm. but they were fighter pilots sitting on the end of their career, their airplane, either an F4, F111, um, EF111 had been retired, or they had maneuvered themselves out of going back to their F16 operational squadron, or for whatever reason, they're out of the operational world and send there. I had a lot of majors and a lot of O5s, and it was really cool. Uh, the young people were uh, no bones about it. When I talked to them, they were saying, hey, I'm just biding my time until I can apply for the airlines. The airlines are hiring, and I am bailing. Really? So I came into a, a dynamic where everyone seemed to be Go, uh, leaving the Air Force, trying to go for the airlines because the Air Force had ridden them all hard. They had spent the last three years overseas in this new um, organization that is for deployed, and I'm not, I mean, is deployed kind of like the Marine Corps going for 30, 60, or 90 days at a time to the Middle East, and they were worn out. They wanted the stability that came with the airlines. Um, so when I gave my speech, I said, hey, I'm not worried about the mission. We're all professionals. It's going to take care of itself. What I want is I want you, everyone here in this squadron, to have the best tour they've ever had in their lives. You know, if you want to ride your bike, I'm going to make sure you got enough time to ride the crap out of that bike. If you want to spend time with your family, I will give you every minute to stay home with your family. If you want to fly your butt off, I'm going to I'm going to allow you to do that and the mission will take care of itself. But this is the Air Force's reward for getting this far. This is your reward. Take advantage of it. And we approached that that my two years there like that to great success. Did you have in mind um, a plan then before you arrived at Columbus as to what sort of squadron you wanted to oversee? Uh, I mean, are you, or is it just that reading of the room when you arrived that then shapes that vision? Uh, I thought about it a lot. 
Yeah, I thought about it. Ever since I got chosen for the job, I started talking to people, reading all I could. I had a real plan. And what my plan was, why are we still doing, my thought, why are we still doing pilot training exactly like how I did it in 1980? The same organization where the students are still so separated from the IPs as opposed to the way it is in an operational fighter squadron. Why aren't we more like a fighter squadron and give the students that have made it this far uh, to the T-38 a little more credit mm-hmm. and, and treat them as aviators instead of students? So that was my initial thinking coming in. Um, when I got there and I read the room and I talked to what became a real good friend of mine, he commanded the, uh, I think it was the 49th, the fighter lead in squadron that was right there next door at Columbus. And he told me, Jim, the, the graduates from Columbus don't do well. They are sucking eggs, you know, that I would say, Hey, you know, the mean, the mean student through IFF, um, is the same. But my problem pilots are all coming from right next door at Columbus. And you would think that new guys coming would have more of a problem. So one of the first things I did when I um, became the commander is I kind of took a week off, gave the squadron to my OPSO, and I flew next door with the IFF for a week solid. I flew like about 12 sorties in five days with those guys to just see what they're doing, how they're teaching their students, sitting in, playing the role of a student, or just monitoring the whole briefing and flight and what they're doing. I came away with a couple of things. Uh, We need to give our students more credit for being better aviators than they are. We need to start expecting more of them. We need to treat them as fighter pilots, not stupid students. And the other thing is we need to change our vernacular and how we do things. We were flying formation the old um, Air Training Command way. Why aren't we flying formation the way IFF flies it? Why aren't we doing it exactly the same way? You know, training to that level. Why aren't we doing maneuvers and calling things? Why don't we use terms like lead and leg, pure pursuit, you know? Lift vector on, lift vector off. Why don't we speak in those terms? How come we don't diagram rejoins with our hands like air-to-air combat instructors diagram aerial engagements? You know, my guys know how to do that. So we started doing all that. And I put our guys through a instructor um, improvement course. Went in and said, you know, this is how you diagram an aerial engagement. And how to make an arc that is symmetrical and for two airplanes. And the key is to move your hand the same arc and that represents the same distance. And then you can show things that are to scale. Where to put the barb when you're putting the lift vector on. And how to diagram going vertical or descending. And let's start doing G-awareness turns and getting these guys and girls to keep track of each other so you're in some sort of formation at the end of this turn, you know, after doing your turn, just improving awareness. So we started flying more like IFF, and the two years that I was there, we didn't have anybody have any trouble at IFF. Hey, everybody. It's Steve, your host. 
With a brief interruption from your scheduled programming, just to remind you that my book, Red Eagles, America's Secret Migs, is available for order on my website and exclusively through my website. The book tells the story of the 4477th Test and Evaluation Squadron and Constant Peg, the program that used covertly acquired MiGs to expose the threat to the tactical air forces through the 1970s and 1980s. It's a great story. It's been out of print for a while, but it is now back in print and is available for a very reasonable price. If you'd like to support the channel, I'd really appreciate it. And you can go to the website. I'll put a link up above and in the description and order the book. Or you can buy any of the other merchandise on the website, including the polo shirt that you see me wearing in this episode. Thank you for your support. So so what is the answer to that question then? You said, why are we still flying like I was trained when I went through Columbus in 1980? What is the answer to that question? Why why did you have to make the change and why wasn't it made prior? You had a really good guy. I'm sorry, I can't remember his name, but he finished as a T6 instructor at Vance like about 10 years later, around 2010, something like that. And he called the people at ATC Furniture. And he referred to them as, you know, trying to get the furniture to move was impossible. And it was exactly that type of bureaucracy that I met in Air Training Command. This is the way we've done it. It's worked. This is the way we do it. We've got procedures. We've got this whole great big staff whose sole purpose is to put out publications and to write manuals. And this is the way that they've written. And we don't see any reason to change any of that. It's working. Hmm. And so instead of fighting that bureaucracy, uh, I just took the authority that was vested in me and given it to me by my leadership at the base, who I kept informed that we were doing and they supported it. We just did it. We just made the changes. And whether you fly uh, formation the way ATC does or the way IFF, we called it the same thing, mm-hmm. you know. But we changed the vernacular and we changed the attitude in the squadron. And we became, I think, much better fighter pilots. And because we stopped training to make uh, all pilots, we assumed by the time you get here, you're going to be a fighter pilot. Let's start acting like it. Uh, I think it's Marco McCaffrey, I think, is the, the guest you're yes. talking about. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll put a link yeah. in, well, up above or in the description or something to his interview. But um, so, so can I ask a couple of questions around that decision or, or that uh, the, the path that you were pursuing then? And, and uh, by the sounds of it, ultimately, you, you did so successfully. First is around risk then. So risk to career, um, risk to you know, the operational loss of an aeroplane, maybe even even lives. Um, it's an inherently dangerous business. We, we talked to that before. Any, anybody who's listening to this will know that that is the fighter aviation business. It's very dangerous. But did you, um, how, how do you strike the balance then between somebody who is not a fighter pilot, but you're going to start getting them into that mindset, um, who is not experienced in the aeroplane? I mean, there's that old expression, isn't it? When you start as a fighter pilot or as a pilot, you start with a big bag of luck and then as a bag of empty experience and then the bag of luck depletes and you better make sure that your bag of experience is filling up because they need to balance out. Do you, do you have uh, any um, reservations then as you're making these decisions about the possibility it could all go wrong? Um, what I just said, you got to take with a grain of salt because we still had to fly to a syllabus. You know, the command, all the smart people, all those dinosaurs had built a very deep syllabus. And um, that syllabus 
90% of it was still perfectly valid and had to be done. Um, you got to teach somebody how to land the T-38 before you can think about teaching them anything else. You got to teach them how to do a um, constant speed climb and descent and how to manage energy in the area before you can teach them anything about flight or fundamentals or anything like that. So what I'm really talking about is like the second half of the course, after they have demonstrated a proficiency of basic airmanship in the T-38, mm. when we start talking about formation, well, let's use the same hand signals that they use from the beginning. We don't need to learn the ATC hand signals and then the IFF hand signals. Let's just start with theirs. We don't need to learn um, two different ways to go out to tactical formation the way ATC tells you to do it and the way IFF instructs you and makes you do it. Let's do it their way from the whole thing. So we started those changes later on. And in your risk, the risk for me was not changing how I taught the students so much. It was how I demand what I asked our instructors to demonstrate. For instance, in the ATC way is you can fly downwind on a T-38 from 220 to 240 knots, okay? It gives you that 20-knot window to fly downwind before you start your final turn. And I told my instructors, I go, hey, for a kid just learning the first couple of times, hey, that's that might be all he can do is fly 20 knots, you know, or close to it. But when you demonstrate, you demonstrate to a knot. If you're going to fly down, downwind, you tell them, hey, I like to fly down, uh, downwind at 215 knots because, and you tell them, and when you roll up on downwind, you are at goddamn 215 knots. Don't be a sloppy IP, and being a good IP means being able to fly the airplane very precisely, and it shows the pilot, someday, I hope to be as precise and as good as my IP. Don't waste an opportunity to fly a precise jet unless you want your student to be a ragged pilot. Everyone, when they have a, a chance, needs to learn how to fly precise because they're going to have to someday. Hmm. I, I once, it brings to mind a, a conversation I once had with somebody. It wasn't an interview, it was just a conversation. He was a former Thunderbird. He'd flown um, two or three years with the Thunderbirds, an F-16 guy, and he'd gone back to an operational F-16 squadron. And I said to him, what was it like going back? He said, it was fine. He said, the only thing that, <laughs> the only thing that would happen is when they would fly formation down initial or in the weather or whatever it was, the guy would look over and get a shot because he was so close. And they'd sometimes say, push it out a little bit. So no. it was hard for him to get the, get used to the idea of going back. And I wondered, did you bring then to Columbus any test pilotisms? I mean, you just, because you just said you do it to the knot, constant speed climb, you do yes. 215 knots. That level of precision, did it carry over? Was it realistic, um, reasonable? Um, did you well, bring things? Test pilot school taught me that uh, to be a good aviator, you got to be able to fly precise. And sometimes you don't have to be precise, but oftentimes when you're not precise, it's because you're lazy, you know? <laughs> And if you're trying to teach somebody how to fly, be the best pilot you can be, and that means flying precise. So if I'm going to go out and demonstrate a loop, the entry parameters for a loop are 450 to 500 knots, okay? 
I tell my students, I like to start my loop at 478 knots. And the reason I like this is because it gives me two Gs before the turning velocity, before the corner velocity of the T38. I'd make up some bullshit. <laughs> but one of the things I could do is I would get at 278 freaking knots, you know, without trying about it and start the loop. And the student was, wow, that I could do that. Hey, let me show you. You can start a lazy eight at 350 to 375. I like to start mine at 360. Okay. And here's why I do 360. And when we pulled out of that loop and we started doing a lazy eight, we started at 360 knots. And I said, I like to start my lazy eight since 15,000 feet because, you know, and we're at 15,000 feet and 360 knots, you know. And I'm telling my guys, you don't have to be that precise all the time, but you should strive for that, you know? And you don't have to demand that of a brand new student who doesn't have the ability. But by you being in the back seat, you do, you know? So why aren't you demonstrating to that ability? How was that received then amongst the IP core? Were people generally supportive of it? Yeah. Uh, they, they love the new attitude, uh, because we've, we acted and became more of a fighter squadron and, um, and, and debriefing the way we would a fighter squadron, you know, is that, man, I thought we wasted 200 pounds doing this bullshit in the area when, you know, we're just rolling around doing nothing. And the old AETC debrief, you wouldn't say stuff like that, you know? And um, somebody would say, and what is this bullshit about, hey, lead, where are you? What the fuck was that? Talk about garbaging up the radios. You know, someday you're going to be somewhere, you know, and, and the deal is tumbleweed, blind. You know, that's what you say. You know, none of this, hey, I'm over here. What the hell is that? You're, when you lose sight, you say blind, you know, who's blind. That's it, you know. Let's get there and let the flight lead jump on it, you know? And just these kind of mindsets like that, that I had that. And when we started doing that, the fighter guys really em embraced it. And everybody was a fighter guy, hmm. you know, that's hmm. what they wanted to fly to. There is that expression, isn't there? There's, there's people that fly fighters and then there are fighter pilots. So, so talk yeah. a little bit about culture then. And, and if you, if you feel like it, maybe talk about the direction that the culture was taking within the Air Force. I, you, you mentioned Marco McCarthy. One of the questions I asked him about was, you know, the risk aversion, the um, d decision to sort of stop certain fighter pilot traditions, you know, the um, erasure, let's say, or the move away from the squadron bar and, and, and those sorts of things. And, you know, I was at Seymour Johnson uh, last year and one of the guys said to me, we just don't spend any time um, as a squadron together anymore. We don't really go to the bar anymore. You know, people now just go home to their families. And so it sounds like fighter pilot culture has changed. Uh, what were you seeing? What did you want to instill culture-wise? What did you want to eradicate culture-wise? What, what were your aspirations for the culture? to create the fighter pilot mentality? Uh, the attitude I wanted to create and foster was when we briefed in a room, look around. And we briefed in rooms. That's the other thing. Instead of this briefing around a table with all these diversions and stuff, I go, oh, no, man. 
if you're going to brief a flight and I made a lot more briefing rooms, you go in and I expect the instructor to be up on the board and briefing standing up with objectives and stuff like that. And we had briefing boards and, and flights were now briefed like they were going to do at IFF. So that's number one. But the other thing is I expected people to look around and go, hey, uh, I do not want to disappoint or embarrass that girl, that pilot, that guy. I'm doing it for my friends, my mentors, my family. And a fighter pilot, the best, the best squadrons are like a family, you know? It's, and I don't want to fly with anybody else. They stink, you know? It's, it's my truth. It is my family that I want to fly with. Did, did they sort of, I mean, you, you were going through Columbus in the 80, in 1980 then. So that was what, sort of five to seven years after Vietnam was over. There must have been a bunch of sort of crusty old traditional sort of fighter pilot types that you met in your career. Um, and you talked about a couple of them being on the, on the raid on, on Libya. Um, did you see then a, a gradual decline in, let's say, raucous behavior? I mean, I, I don't want to sort of tar, tar anybody with the wrong brush or the same brush, but 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 were you seeing that, um, a more sort of yes. gen- genteel type of fighter pilot coming in? Yes, it is. And, you know, um, there, there used to be a swagger to fighter pilots that came out at the squadron bar and then you – finished there and you went to the O club and you played crud or you did something else and it stayed there. And, um, it, people started saying it glamorized alcohol. Well, it glamorized smoking and alcohol and womanizing and it glamorized a whole bunch of social evils. But what it did do is it bonded people together in a non-threatening environment. Now, people would say, oh, it was threatening. If you were a woman walking into some of these places, it was insulting and threatening. I'll give you that. So a lot of changes had to occur, social changes, but we lost something when we no longer do things together Mm. and do things together in a non-military situation and when we do things together because we choose to be there and we're having fun. And whatever that fun is, whether it's swimming together, drinking together, telling stories together, playing bread together, um, folks need to be together to bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, just on the same type of um, theme then, one thing I was wanted to ask you about, and you've mentioned a couple of times, I noticed you're very careful to make sure that you – you know, include men and women in your in your narrative, and when you're talking about hypotheticals or or, or sort of fictitious conversations, you say she or he, you know, and, and you give women sort of part of that um, sort of picture. Um, what did you observe with regards to then women being in the training environment, and whether it had any impact, or what sort of what level of impact it had then on? Um, the pipeline going up to IFF, you know, where women generally had, did they have the same aptitude as as the men? Were there things they were better at? What were you seeing culturally? What were you seeing actually in the cockpit from the two different genders? It, 
I saw the whole transition of women from not being allowed to fly at all to the full transition to where now there is no difference. That period in the history of the Air Force was my history. No women going through pilot training, then suddenly they are. No women as um, fighter pilots, now they are and are integral. Saw that whole thing. And there was a period and a transition. But from my experience, there is no difference in ability. And especially uh, the last, um, my last years in the Air Force, where now girls growing up and boys growing up are having similar upbringing. And I would say there is no basis to expect any difference in behavior from a young woman or a young man entering pilot training. Hmm. That's it. Now, there is still some sensitivities about gender, and some people treat it better than others. And we haven't gotten to a gender-fluid, no-gender Air Force. We use too many masculine pronouns. Um, and even today, I was at an Oak Club last summer at Lake and Heath, and I heard a bunch of speeches, and we kept using masculine pronouns. And I'm looking at a couple of women pilots. And I was just thinking, if I was there, would I feel included? You know, did I, did this guy not, not meaning to, did he just exclude those two members of his organization? Yeah, he did, you know? So it's a transition. And as leaders become more savvy, to it and more aware it will go away but we've got a lot to do to make everyone feel equal and included still to go so so uh, another subject that's a little um well it's topical let's say um is the decision by i think it's by atc these days not to do formation approaches and landings maybe they do the approaches but they just don't do the landing bit anymore um, and not well, to do formation takeoffs. So, and I know that came because there was a fatality. There was a T-38 that rolled um, on landing and killed both the, the, the guys in the airplane. Um, your thoughts on that? Uh, when I taught formation landings at Eglin, it was a high-risk event, you know, only because, hey, we're teaching it, and we only do them once every month, you know, and that's because we have to uh, um, show a student and we get so few times, and it's so hard to do them. Um, students, oftentimes, were flying a formation approach and landing the first time themselves, if they were a good student, you know, <laughs> without a demo and the IP just riding on the controls. So we weren't doing them enough to maintain proficiency. I would say that. So they were one of the highest-risk maneuvers. The old guys would say, uh, well, they used to do it all the time and, and would tell you about stories about, Losing electronic, using electrics and needing this to get through the weather. And if it wasn't for being able to do that, I would have died. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I have no doubt in those stories. Modern aircraft aren't like that. Man, um, the week I spent at Lake and East, I didn't see a single formation approach and landing. Not mm -hmm. a single one, you know. And the operational Air Force, uh, I don't know if they do them anymore or not. But it came to a time that the world is changing, you know? And just like we no longer 
practice how to do uh, uh, HSI point to points on a compass card on an HSI. We no longer do formation approaches and landing because we are doing more tactics mm. as if we were an invisible aircraft. And that's what I like to think. I think that it's not that we're not doing a dangerous uh, maneuver. It's that the need for that maneuver has decreased to the point it's no longer worth the risk. You said it. It's about the risk of using elect uh, losing electrics or instrumentation and having to be led into the weather is great. And in the old Vietnam Century Series aircraft, it was. Things would go bad. Gyros would go out. And you would have to be led in on a formation approach or landing. Modern airplanes, oh man, I don't know. I'm sure it might have happened sometime or happened, but the last real no kidding approach and landing, I don't know, man. So I just think it was the risk no longer warrants doing that. Yeah. That uh, hey, we can spend the gas doing something else. Is is there an argument? I think uh, my understanding is the origination of that technique, if you want to call it that, was getting airplanes on the ground as quickly as possible in as efficient a manner as possible. I mean, you think about weather, and we're talking about wartime. You know, the weather comes in. You you know, you and the the, the airfield's block, blocked out by rain. You've got nowhere else to go. You're going to have to bail out, or whatever. Um, and obviously, that's not those those things don't happen nowadays either. But um, the possibility that may happen at ten times of conflict is that's is that a, a driver? Is that a motivator? Well, to challenge you that question. Raise a good point. I would say first off, if the weather's good, you're going to bring your four ship down a niche. You know, and I think we're talking about four ships. You know, um, so how do you get a four ship down as fast as you can? You bring them down initial pitch out and land. Okay, you don't go into two wing approaches. I don't think. Okay, mm -hmm. maybe the new guys want to do that. I don't know, but. Um, your point is also taken. We, uh, If you're trying to get a whole bunch of planes on the ground at once, what used to be a 55 airplane launch at Lake and Heath and an elephant walk is now 12. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's their big elephant walk. You know, we're talking about when we used to launch the fleet in the Vietnam era and post-Vietnam, you could launch 70 airplanes, you know, in some of these bases and have 70 mm. airplanes up at once. And trying to recover them all at once was a real thing. Now, you know, what's an elephant walk and a big, you know, red flag? It is a quarter of the airplanes that used to fly yeah. in a red flag. Yeah. I think 70 aircraft is bigger than the Royal Air Force at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it does, so, does, it, does the, the fighters. Just, we have just <laughs> shrunk so far that these old considerations of mass recovery of aircraft really, mm. really... Let, let, me, let me ask you another question, which I like. I don't want to be rude to you, but I like asking crusty old fighter pilots this question too. Um, technology, you just talked about it. You talked about the fact that, you know, the old gyros could tumble and the old electrical systems, they don't build airplanes now like they did with the Century Series fighters. You know, you watch you watch the news, the aviation news, you know, in the last couple of months, you would probably have seen airliners flying over Iraq, having their GPS signals jammed. They've got the whoop whoop pull up when they're at 30,000 feet because it thinks they're over terrain. You know, their, their INSs and their INUs are all being messed up. The IRSs are being messed up. Um, the reliance on technology then, you said you don't do, they don't do the fix to fix anymore. They don't train that at, at UPT anymore. Um is is that reliance is is it inevitable that you rely on technology you can't fall back on the old methods is it inevitable that will happen and how vulnerable are those things 
Um, first off, the old guys, and me included, will tell you there's a few things old pilotage that all pilots just have to have. They got to be able to follow a heading. You got to be able to follow uh, an attitude. You got to be able to tell if your RPM is increasing and you're at wings low, you know, wings level, you're descending, you know, you're going too fast, you know. You got to be able to pick up some pilotage cues. Uh, that's it. Alex are about to go out the window. My God, the um, smart wingmen in the Air Force, we're going to start sending up two ships within five years, and the other guy is just going to be a bunch of computers. Hmm. Yeah, we're already replacing the pilot, and we're already talking about airlines being one pilot, okay, or uh, a monitor of technology, and the real pilot is the technology. It's coming. Whether you like it or not, it is coming. Um, and the Air Force is talking, hey, we don't need two pilots up there in front of these airplanes. What if we just train somebody that knows how to talk on the radio and can put the gear handle up and be an assistant to the pilot? And that's coming. Hmm. Um, so whether or not you're a technology advocate or not, um, the aerospace world is changing because uh, I think the technology is safer than the humans were. Well, there will always be a need for human intervention, and somebody's going to be able to identify an, a time when the human stepped in and saved the day. There will always be that, but there will be countless more times where if that was a human operating that plane, it would have failed, it would have crashed. The automation is doing it better than we could. Let me turn that on its head then and, and ask specifically then about the you know sort of more modern air warfare doctrine, well, not doctrine, but technology that underpins okay. doctrine. Um, Network-centric warfare, the use of data links, the reliance on data links, the reliance on GPS-guided munitions. You, you, it was really interesting to talk you hear you talk about that first sort of intelligent fuse. We now have smart fuses that you can reprogram in the air. You know, um, but but there is, for example, the F thirty five is all built around this thing called MADL, which is a very sophisticated, apparently very very um, secure data link. But if you break the data link. You've broken what underpins the airplane's operational doctrine, which is the ability to interoperate with other platforms, share data, fuse the data not just from your own platform, but from somebody else's platform, build the air picture. It's all reliant on that. So is that a smart thing as well? I mean, is 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 is, is again, is that an inevitability? There's no point in arguing with it because it is how things go. Uh, I'm kind of talking through my rear end because I don't know. I haven't flown a fifth-generation aircraft. I don't know how they do it. This is how I imagine it. They, even today and tomorrow and 20 years from now, aircraft will launch with a plan with what we intend to do, and you will have decision trees on what to do after that. And if everything is working, you're in data link communication, you're in radio communication, you're in magic communication, everything is working. And that's the plan. But as systems start to degrade, you revert more and more to your decision tree and the plan 
and the automation is going to guide you in those decisions, mm-hmm. you know, that, hey, we've lost Adelie. This is the last known thing. Do you want to manual, do you want to update this coordinate or is this still good for the target, you know? Yeah, or, um, hey, let's try a different way to input information to that bomb. Hmm. Do, do you, uh, as another odd question, I'm not trying to be rude, but but there is that old expression, isn't there? Oh, it's not old, it's, it's an old sort of observation about how, you know, between the time it took the right flyers to t- take their first flight in North Carolina and sending the man to the moon, moon was 60 years or whatever, 69 years or whatever it was, um, 64 years, um, Someone will post in the comments what how many years it was. It was sixty to yeah. seventy years. Uh, and do you ever reflect then on your um, experience on the fifteenth of April, nineteen eighty six, going and bombing Libya um, with those GB? Was you GBU ten or did you have Mark eighty two? I can't remember what you had, but, but with those bombs, yeah. GBU ten. So with those GBU ten and where we are now, and think the same sort of thing in terms of every development. day. I I think of it this way. When I went to Libya in 1986, okay, World War II was 40 years prior. You know what I mean? Yeah. 40 years, you know? And World War II sounded ancient, you know? It sounded like it was the Civil War. We talked about propellers, you know, and uh, <laughs> and firing bullets and gunners, you know? It was just so archaic. 40 years. Well, it's 40 years since um, coming up to 40 years. And Libya, for me, sounds like yesterday. You know? Does it? it? It's in my mind like it was yesterday. And now I understand my father and his generation and all those old guys that were veterans of World War II. It consumed their lives for the rest of their lives and how they raised their family and what they thought of and how they raised and and the type of people they became war too was just the dominant factor and but the technology that has happened from 1986 to now i think is greater than the technology from world war ii to 1986 yeah and pretty soon we're going to get into an airliner without seeing two guys or two pilots up front. There's just going to be uh, probably somebody sitting somewhere near that can monitor, you know, and perhaps fly a switch and switch something around. There'll probably always be a computer monitor for the foreseeable future, but maybe not. You know, would you? It's a silly question, and we've gone miles off the beaten track. But I, I don't, I'm not bothered by it. Um, but would you get on an airplane if you saw <laughs> one person? Yeah, you would yeah, do it. I you would. would do it, would you? Uh, because it's not going to happen in my. It's not going to happen in Sam. <laughs> and by the time I do that, plenty of people have done it before me. Yeah, you're not going to be you're a not. guinea pig then. Yeah, which is ironic given that you were a test pilot. Yeah, um, so effectively a guinea pig. Um, okay. Let's go back to Columbus, Columbus, because we were, um, you were talking about it, and I've taken us miles, yeah. miles of the pin track. This picture behind me, you, you sent that to me. Tell me oh. about, tell me the story of that. Uh, well, uh, when I was at Columbus, we transitioned from the white jets. We used to call the T-38 the white rocket, and we called this the gateway jets. And if you remember back in the mid-90s, one of the principal personal computer companies was uh, Gateway. And they had boxes that looked like cows 
with the black and white Guernsey cows. Do you remember? Yeah. And um, so when this paint scheme came out, um, we called them the gateway jets, just like the gateway PC boxes. And um, these were the first four jets to come out of paint where I could get them together in a new publicity photo shoot to replace all of our white rockets photos and get the new gateway jet photos. So I still had friends at Eglin. I called up at the aerial photographers and I said, hey, I want to bring one of your photographers up. Uh, I was talking to Ralph Simpson, who was the head aerial photographer. Ralph, you want to come up? I'll fly in a T-30 like old times. I need some photos taken. And he goes, nah, I don't want to come up, Jose. But I got this new guy. He needs the experience. You want to take him? And it was Staff Sergeant, I think, Sampson that took that. If, if I look on the deal, he's credited with this photo. So he came up for a day from Eglin. Uh, I put him in the backseat. Um, I got four. There were five of us. I got four pilots, and I briefed all the different scenes. I'm, I briefed that lake that we were going to fly over that. Mm, nice. I briefed the different formations and angles. I said, don't get concerned. I'm going to come right over the top of you, and I'm going to kick on outside rudder, and it's going to look like we're falling down to you. I promise we will not fall down on you, you know? But we were flying and so much side slip to force that airplane sideways to get that canopy rail out of the photo, you know? Because yeah. I knew what it took to fly the 38 to get that canopy bow out of the photo and to get all four jets in really nice. We orchestrated that we orchestrated some echelon photos we orchestrated some landing photos wing landing with the photographer in the back seat and all those photos this being i think one of the prettiest shots are now the air force standard and when you look at a file photos or file footage of a t-38 and a description it is this picture yeah, or sorry. pictures from that day that you will see uh, about the T-38. And this is before the T-38C mod. So the burner cans are different. The inlets are different. There's no GPS on the front of the windscreen. So this is old T-38As. Did, did you instigate the paint change then? Is that part of your uh, bringing It wasn't my decision, but right. it was uh, Air Training Command did it. Okay. And what was the purpose? You know, I think it was respond to the new ATC commander. I can't think of his name. Maybe I'll think of it. But he was an old fighter guy, and he was very influential. And I think he was realizing now that everyone that goes through T-38s is a fighter pilot, we need to think, get them to change their mindset. You are no longer training a target. You know, you're no longer flying a target. You're flying a fighter. Learn how to fly. And it was more to just change the, I think, the approach that students took to the T-38. Hey, you're moving up in the world. This is an operational airplane. Mm. I think I mentioned it in the in the first interview, um, but a, a previous guest on this channel, Hacker Haskin, he was one of your students at uh, Columbus. He, he said you were a great squadron boss. So, you know, your, your, your retelling of the story tallies with the, the way that obviously other people remember it too. So, oh, good. Thank you. Did, did, Thank did, you. Did you, I mean, did you feel like this was a very... Um, 
suitable rounding out of your career then it was interesting when you talked in an interview too about the desire to get back with the warfighter to be out of the test environment and get back to the pointy end of the spear in, in inverted commas did you feel that this was a fitting end to your career did it did it tick the box did it make you feel fulfilled uh yes this was the best way i could have gone out um and to be able to retire as the squadron commander, what a great way to leave the Air Force, you know. And I would think um, just about every senior leader, whether in the Navy or the Air Force or the Army, when they talk about what was the highlight of their career, they will always probably mention their um, squadron or um, a battalion command. Hmm. What um, can I ask then? Did you, if it's not a stupid question, did you know your final flight in a fast jet, presumably the T thirty eight, was going to be your final flight? Oh yeah, you did. And I orchestrated, and I um, chose a student flight. My final flight. You know, a lot of people go out and have a finny flight and do these things. I said no. I'm just going to jump in and I'm going to be the instructor and F fifty seven o three for this kid. It was his student ride. You know. And I was, um, you know, two students, two IPs. We briefed for flight, and that was my last flight in the Air Force. Wow. How did it feel? That really melancholy, you know. And I remember that flight like it was yesterday. Was it, was it a dollar ride then? Is that, is that the dollar ride? Uh, no, it wasn't a dollar ride. It was just your everyday average middle of the syllabus two-ship formation. Hey, okay. we're going to practice. We're going to practice rejoins. We're going to practice fingertip and some extended trail maneuvering. Did you separate them from the Air Force immediately after that? There's a period of out-processing, yes, but you didn't hang yeah. around. So I tried the airlines. Um, I thought, hey, everybody's leaving the airlines. I'll try the airlines, and I hated it. I was an airline <laughs> pilot for about a year, and oh, my gosh. You know, there's some people that really like the airlines, and I couldn't get out fast enough. Uh, I worked for uh, an outfit. My first job was with Atlas Air. That's who I got hired with immediately. Atlas uh, 747. Yeah. And um, so I started flying a really modern, big, cool airplane. And um, Atlas Air was fine. Um, they treated us well on the road. But people ask me what it's like being an airline pilot. And from my limited perspective, I tell them, hey, Go sit in the closet with the vacuum running for 18 hours, okay? And every six hours, somebody throws a TV dinner under the door to you, you know? And when when you get in the cockpit of a 747 or a modern jet, and the first thing you do is you put on external power and you put on power to the cockpit, you can't be in that environment without headphones on. It is so loud. All the cooling fans that come in, it is just deafening. And sitting next to somebody, unless we talked on the intercom, you had to shout yeah. to, to have a conversation. Um, and it seemed like I was always flying westerly with the sun in my eyes. And as you fly westerly, you know, you're flying roughly with the rotation of the earth. So you're constantly just in the same relative position with the sun. And it was it was a pain in the ass. I couldn't wait to get out of it. 
So um, I then entered the uh, Foreign Service, took the exam in, in the Foreign Service, and was a Foreign Service officer for 20 years in the State Department. Did that involve any flying? None. None. Did you so did you pursue it as a private hobby, as a general aviation um, hobby type thing? Uh, the last air I had under my ass was with the ambassador of uh, Australia in Zimbabwe. And he was uh, learning how to fly in Zimbabwe. And he found out I was a pilot. And he asked me if um, uh, he would, and he reflect, and he told me one day that he was having really difficulty finding mats, you know, on where he was trying to fly and learn how to fly. He didn't have any aeronautical charts. So I called somebody and I got a good um, Jepson chart for South Africa and I got some good aeronautical charts and I gave it to him for Christmas. And as a present, he said, hey, Jose, let's go fly. And we flew around um, South Africa, Zimbabwe um, in his 172 for a couple of days. And that was the last time I flew. Did you miss it? Uh, no, not at all. Um, you know, my father talked misty-eyed about flying and, and that poem, High Flight, and John Gillespie McGee and all that type of sentiment a lot of people have. For me, um, I enjoyed the sports and camaraderie of being on a team and doing something as, uh, as a team, uh, playing a game, if you know what I mean, outsmarting somebody else. That being able to manipulate an airplane was no different than being able to be a skilled receiver on the field. You know, I, I, I thought of it like that. So I wanted to go out and fight, and the airplane was my instrument of death. Um, other people thought of flying as, oh, um, look at the pretty sky, and isn't it great to be up here looking down? Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so, 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 so did you, is there a void? So not, not for the flying then, but for you know, being the master sportsman, the master craftsman, the equivalent of, you know, for being the, the commander of your own destiny in that respect. When I talk about my personal heroes, level of respect to no respect, you know, up here at the top are those pilots that had to face combat and life and death situations routinely for a long period of time. I think about Man, in World War II, there was, you know, the German pilots, you know, they just, you know, faced that every day and growing and growing odds. I think about that the most. And right underneath them are the, the guys in Vietnam, knowing they're going to the most highly defended area in the world, and they're doing it a hundred times over, over, and Living through that kind of thrilling environment, coming back to the bar, drinking, talking about it, getting yourself ready to do it again the next day. I just find that incredible. Uh, and then the guys in Desert Storm that did that for 45 days, you know, the guys that had repeated combat that kind of faced that stress. Those are the people I have great respect for 
And in my own career, that's what I feel is lacking that I never got to do that. I never got to feel that repeated stress or um, know what that was like and how people lived through that. Hmm. But are you are you, are you, um, you proud of what you did? I mean, are you, are you proud of what you accomplished? I am proud of what I did for what I had an opportunity to do. Yeah. So I'm proud of what I did, but I still said, hey, looking back, I... I think a lot that if I was going to manage my career with perfect knowledge of what I know what was about to happen, I go, I would want to manage my career. So I was back at Lake and Heath in the fall of 1990. Hmm. How could I have managed to leave in 86 and get back in 90? You know, hmm. what would I have had to do? And I keep going, no, you would have been on the staff someplace. You would have been a major looking out. Your timing was all wrong. The people that flew in the war were not your age group. They were the, the age group below or the age group above. Hmm. Do, do you know offhand how many of the Libya Raiders went to Desert Storm? I mean, ballpark. Um, was it, was it, is it just a, a tiny number? Is it none? Is it most of them? Just a tiny number. Just a tiny number. You know? And that, that proves I don't the point, know, doesn't it, really? Uh, I, don't, I don't know anyone offhand. Hmm. You know, I can't think. I'm sure there probably is. And I'm embarrassed that I don't know who they are, but there probably is somebody, but they flew in a squadron other than the yellows. They weren't a 493rd guy. Mm. They were somebody else, but I don't know of anybody. Mm. I, I said, uh, Jim, in my last call with you, I, I try not to ask cheesy questions, but I do have to ask an, a, a, maybe a, as a closer, maybe a, a cheesy question. Of all the airplanes that you flew, of all the experiences that you had, um, and not uh, not including the Libya raid, which one would you go back and repeat? Which one would you go and fly again? Which experience would you try to enjoy once more if you had the uh, choice? F-15. My Finney flight in the F-15 was at an undisclosed location. You know, I can't say where it was, but I had a chance to be in an F-15C with 220 motors, and I had nothing to do, and I was lightweight. I knew I was never going to be able to do this again. It was my last flight at that spot. And I did a touch and go, put it into Brothers and just put it on its tail and went to the moon. And I can remember turning around, looking between those big twin tails and watching the earth disappear. You know, it was just like a moonshot. And that big airfield went just into nothing as I'm blowing up. But that's what I'd want to do again. So, so I, I always lie when I say it's my last question because then I always think of another question. And yeah. I had thought about this question before, but I didn't ask it. But because you mentioned it, um, do you think that the way you think of your career and um, how you feel about it would change if you could talk freely about what you were doing for those two, three years? Would that? No, because, it would just be. It would just be more color. You know, mm -hmm. and I don't understand why it's classified at these days. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm hoping that in uh, our lifetime and while you're still doing this, that it becomes unclassified and we have a chance to talk about it because there's nothing really extraordinary other than good bar stories. There's nothing. I can't understand why it isn't yeah. out in the world now. If the if the Red Eagles are out, I don't understand why the Red Hats aren't. Yeah. Well, we can only hope, and, and I would yeah. be delighted if, if they do 
you know, give it, uh, get it, get it declassified, and we can we could talk about it. I tell you one thing as a as a parting um, sort of bit of commentary from me: the Air Force is struggling to find a single piece of paperwork <laughs> that says that the Constant Peg program has been declassified. I don't know if you're aware of that. Jack got it declassified, but it was never signed by anybody. That's that's a bit of an issue at the moment because that's, what's what's kind of. I don't doubt that at all, but what I find funny is somewhere in the Pentagon, there's probably a whole team of staff officers trying to figure out how to put it back in the box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Yeah. Um, Jim, was there anything else that you would like no, to I say? No, I want to tell you, uh, these, these sessions have been like a catharsis. It's really been enjoyable to relive some of these memories and to talk about this stuff. And I want to tell you how much I admire your program for doing this. Um, I think this is a great oral history that so many uh, military pilots have. And you can just see it in all of their faces, the enthusiasm and relief of finally being able to tell their story. Yeah. Well, for us, it's a delight, a treat to listen to you. You've been, uh, at the the point at which we're recording this, the full episode from part one still hasn't gone out yet, but I've released three clips and the response to that has been tremendous. And people love your, um, you know, your uh, joie de vivre and and your enthusiasm for what it is that you were doing and talking about. So it's been a treat to have you on and to share it with us. So thank you very much. Um, And yes, absolutely. uh, Come back and talk to us again, uh, especially if you know that piece of work that you did is is something that you can talk about at some point in the future will do thanks again steve cheers jim